everybody, and welcome to Project HR, a podcast dedicated to building better workplaces. Project HR is brought to you by Projections, an IRI company. IRI helps organizations navigate workplace challenges, improve employee engagement and productivity, manage labor relations, and implement effective communication strategies to achieve their goals. For more information, you can visit Projections online at projectionsinc.com. I am Jennifer Oroqua, Director of Business Development for IRI, and your host for today's episode of Project HR. As highly skilled professionals in employee and labor relations, we are all acutely aware that corporate labor relations is being forever changed by the current climate. NLRB elections over the last year have been conducted by mail, lowering voter turnout from around 78% to closer to 69%. And when an organizing drive got to a vote, the unions won in over 72% of those elections. But what do those statistics mean to us, the strategy with which we approach our direct connection to employees, and the future of labor relations in general? Joining me today is Nick Monday, Managing Director for IRI Consultants. Nick has nearly two decades of human resources and labor relations experience, specializing in union organizing campaigns, representation elections, and communication strategies. Nick has advised clients with some of the country's fastest-changing workforces in healthcare, education, retail, and manufacturing. Nick's experience also includes delivering management and employee training, conducting focus groups, and performing issue analysis and intelligence gathering. Nick, it's so great to have you here on Project HR. Thanks, Jennifer. Pleasure to be here. So, Nick, let's dive right into this. At IRI, we've been talking a lot about how much is going on in labor relations right now. And even for the most skilled labor and HR professionals, keeping up is a challenge. What do we need to be paying attention to most right now? Well, the the pace of change is accelerating. Information is flowing faster than it ever has before. Mm -hmm. Uh, The new administration in Washington, D.C. is making a lot of moves. And because of this, employers are really wrestling with how to manage what hopefully will be soon uh, will soon be the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. Department of Labor reported that nearly 4 million employees quit their jobs in April of this year. So employees have a lot more choice uh, in where they want to work than they did before. Mm-hmm. And because of COVID and a lot of employees working remotely, um, the workplace is being redesigned like no time before. Uh, And then finally, social issues are becoming increasingly intertwined with workplace issues. Um, And so all of this is to say it's even more complicated than ever before to lead employees today. So if my company hasn't really experienced any unrest, no employee protests, no union organizing, why should I be paying attention to this topic? Well, it's great for your organization if you haven't experienced that. Um, that. That generally means that you're doing some things well. But we've seen at a lot of organizations, it can go from no issues to major issues very, very quickly. And mm-hmm. it's often hard to respond successfully when it gets that far. Labor unions have a significant first mover advantage, and they can gain a lot of support when employers aren't being proactive in resolving issues and educating their employees. Mm-hmm. And when a lot of workforces have moved, to a fully remote or hybrid model because of COVID-19, it's becoming even more difficult for leaders to pick up on these early warning signs of issues than it was before when they might have been face-to-face with their their workforce. Meanwhile, labor unions uh, have become increasingly savvy at using digital tools to target and connect with employees. So 10 years ago, when employers were just beginning to get used to using Facebook in the workplace and understanding how Twitter would work uh, within the workplace, you know, then we had to learn several years later, how do we do that same thing with Instagram and Slack and mm-hmm. some of the other tools? And mm-hmm. now conversations are moving to new platforms like TikTok. So mm-hmm. it's constantly trying to catch up with that. And labor unions tend to be fairly nimble um, at, at developing new strategies to leverage those tools. Bottom line, labor issues are having a greater impact on organizations 
uh, in their workforce. Labor strife can impact consumer buying behavior mm. um, and can certainly affect employee recruitment and retention. So all reasons why this is really important to, to focus on this right now. For sure. And it's it's a lot to keep up with. And one thing that has gotten a lot of press recently is the, the PRO Act, Protecting the Right to Organize Act. And we've written at length about it, of course, but where does the PRO Act stand now? What's next? Well, right now, the PRO Act is at somewhat of a standstill in Congress, but it's not dead yet. Um, it passed in the House earlier in the year with a roughly mm-hmm. party line vote. Uh, mm-hmm. But with the deadlock in the Senate, it has yet to gain the 60 votes that it needs to advance. Um, so unless the Senate abandons the filibuster rule, it's not really likely to pass as a standalone bill in the near future. Um, however, and it's really important, congressional Democrats have been actively inserting elements from the PRO Act into numerous other legislative passages hoping to get it passed. So even if it can't pass on its own, they're starting to include this into larger bills like the infrastructure bill and other legislative uh, packages. Organized labor is putting a lot of pressure on legislators to pass this bill some way or somehow. And so recently, rideshare drivers in California held uh, a strike and were holding rallies to raise awareness of the PRO Act in front Mm. of uh, a number of rideshare company uh, headquarters in California. Uh, the Senate Help Committee recently held a hearing on the bills uh, at the end of July as well. Mm-hmm. And the employer community is also lobbying really hard um, in opposition to this bill. So there's a lot going on. Uh, we will all want to continue to watch it very, very carefully. So you were talking about rideshare. Obviously, there's components of the PRO Act that affect those indus- that industry. Which parts of the PRO Act do you think are of the greatest concern? Wow. Well, there are so many changes to the existing law in the PRO Act. Um, there's at least 50. So mm. if, if passed in its current form, it would be the most sweeping change to labor law in the country since 1935, mm-hmm. since yeah. the passage of the National Labor Relations Act. So I, I say this, there are a lot of different things in there that will affect different different organizations in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to pick one specific provision that's most concerning without being able to, to dig into a specific industry or employer. Mm. But you provide a great example. So one provision in the PRO Act would greatly narrow the nef- the definition of independent contractors. So mm-hmm. for an employer that has almost all W-2 employees, this probably isn't an issue. But if mm-hmm. you are a rideshare operator uh, or a grocery delivery company um, mm-hmm. that relies a lot on independent contractors, this might apply to the, the vast majority of your workforce. This mm-hmm. could be a monumental change in, in how they do business. But if I did have to pick one, I would probably say it's the potential to have unions certified as the bargaining representative of employees without the union having to win a secret ballot election. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that stands out because it's such a fundamental shift from the democratic secret ballot election process that we've mm-hmm. been used to mm-hmm. uh, since 1935. Yeah. So let, let's hop over to what's going on on at the NLRB right now. Um, not just what's going on, but what the changes at the National Labor Relations Board mean for employers. Well, Jennifer, we're in a a transitional period at the National Labor Relations Board right now. Um, On Inauguration Day, President Biden summarily fired the general counsel uh, of the National Labor Relations Board Mm -hmm. and appointed an acting general counsel. Uh, And uh, acting general counsel or has been very, very busy redefining the enforcement direction of the NLRB, uh, Mm -hmm. even in that acting role. Uh, The general counsel's office rescinded 10 memos from the previous general counsel and issued a new memo in March, putting the employer community on notice that it will expand 
its view of what they consider to be protected activities by employees uh, under mm-hmm. the National Labor Relations Act. And they're going so far as to say that some of the social justice issues and other things that we've seen, a lot of activism around, those could potentially be considered protected employee activities in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, The nominee for general counsel, who is yet to be confirmed as of this recording, has a very strong pro-labor background as well. So I think for every employer, they should expect much more vigorous enforcement activity from the National Labor Relations Board, particularly out of the general counsel's office. Mm, Um, On the other side of the NLRB, so that's the general counsel's, uh, the office of the general counsel, we also have the five-member NLRB in Washington, D.C. that adjudicates issues that come up to them. Right now, there is a three-to-one Republican majority on that board with one vacancy. Mm -hmm. Um, The president named Lauren McFerrin, the lone Democrat, as the chair, but the NLRB is still issuing decisions that reflect the current Republican majority. Um, However, Republican member Bill Emanuel's term expires towards the end of August this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And the White House has already nominated two union attorneys, both from SEIU locals, uh, to fill the existing and that upcoming vacancy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so once both are confirmed by the Senate, they they start their roles. Employers can expect to see that pendulum swing really quickly back to more pro-employee and pro-union decisions coming out of that National Labor Relations Board. Um, and we also may see rulemaking from the NLRB that makes it easier for unions to organize. And sort of in a, a reaction to this, we've also been talking a lot lately about the transition to a new proactive era for employers. You know, pre-2000, we were in a, a reactionary era where companies only addressed their employer relations strategy when active union organizing took place. And then up until the pandemic, we were focused on employee surveys, what most would refer to as the engagement era. So now we're actively in the proactive era of positive employee relations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, a lot of this has to do with the speed of information and knowledge transfer. And and so pre-2000, the reactionary era, as as you've called it, Mm-hmm. employers had the the luxury of time to respond to a lot of issues right. um, because communication just didn't occur as quickly as it does nowadays. Um, and then you moved in, you mentioned moving into the engagement era and employee surveys are a great tool. And I strongly mm-hmm. believe that, that they can be a really effective part of an overall mm-hmm. strategy. But the challenge with surveys is that they still typically reflect a single point in time in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases that could be weeks, that could be months. Um, it could be quite a long time after the survey is conducted until an employer can do something meaningful with those results. Now, some employers are moving to more real-time survey tools or rolling surveys versus that everyone participates at once model. And that does help. Um, But even with those adjustments, there's still that lag time. And that's why I wholeheartedly believe the most effective employers um, are those that are committing resources to training leaders on how to actively engage their employees every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, A great leader shouldn't need to wait for survey results to tell them what issues their employees are having um, because they should already be asking them and addressing Mm -hmm. those issues on a daily basis. Um, But that leadership competency isn't innate uh, to to any of us as leaders. It's it's a learned behavior. And that means that the employer community needs to devote resources to developing leaders in that way. The other aspect of being proactive is creating a comprehensive labor relations strategy up front. Uh, Once there's authorization card signing or there's a petition for an election that's filed, 
it's way too late. And you yeah. spoke to that with the, the, the election statistics. Unions mm-hmm. are winning the majority of elections right. that they're involved in. Um, and there's just simply too much for an employer to do in a short window uh, of time. And it's, it's not going to get any easier if the PRO Act is passed um, or if the, the reconstituted National Labor Relations Board changes some of their rules. All right. With that scare there, Nick, we're going to take a quick sponsorship break right now. When we return, I want to start getting into the specific steps that we can take to address the changes ahead. Are you new to labor relations or working in HR and ta-da, now need labor relations skills? Today's sponsor, Union Proof Certification, has got you covered. Union Proof Certification is a comprehensive online course in labor relations that will help you get the knowledge you need to understand what's at stake, the language used by unions and attorneys, the resources available for assistance, and how you can turn a potentially frightening situation into a positive one. You can learn more at unionproof.com certification. Learn years of labor relations knowledge at your own pace and earn 24 SHRM or HRCI credits at the same time. I'm back with Nick Monday, Managing Director of IRI Consultants, to learn more about the specifics he recommends for strategic approach to positive employee relations. So Nick, first, what questions should we be asking ourselves to understand our own vulnerability to a union organizing drive? Well, before even beginning to dig into vulnerabilities, it's important that leaders ensure that their peers understand why this is a strategic imperative within the organization. Mm -hmm. And too often, we think of labor relations as being an HR issue. So it resides in the HR function, uh, but Mm -hmm. it affects so much more than than HR. And so getting the entire C team on board with the importance of labor relations up front can really set the stage for success later. So I think that's the first step before you even dive into the vulnerabilities. But once you've done that, um, understanding the issues employees are facing, is that a, a good next step? Um, It is more to me than analyzing, just analyzing employee opinion survey data. Um, It also means tasking leaders with having focused discussions with the employees. Hmm. Um, And organizations should be asking themselves, what content knowledge or skills do our leaders already possess to do that? Um, Or where can they benefit from some more skill building or knowledge? So are there specific tools that we can use to gather data on what we should be doing? Absolutely. Um, A a good labor relations assessment tool that identifies areas where you're already excelling at and areas with opportunities uh, is invaluable in creating a roadmap for a labor relations strategy. So I say without a gap analysis like that up front, it's really hard to determine where to start. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of us are already gathering a lot of data about employees, right? It's, It's the era of big data as well. So there's a ton of data coming in from multiple sources Um, about employees and employee relations issues. So I I would suggest one starting point is look at the existing data that you have and build some form of dashboard. Uh, And that's a great way to leverage what you already have and what you're already investing in internally. Uh, For example, you can combine employee opinion survey data with data around turnover. Uh, You can layer in compensation analysis information. You can bring Mm -hmm. in statistics on uh, calls to your compliance hotline. And then you can start looking for patterns or, or areas of vulnerability. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and often you have all this data, but you're not necessarily bringing it all together um, and looking at it through this lens. 
Uh, in addition to that internal data, I'd also recommend building in external information like union organizing data by geographic area, mm. um, union density, so that you can understand some of the external factors outside of the organization. Uh, I will caution not to over-index on data alone, though. I think a, a lot of times we're looking for a purely data-driven solution that's going to be predictive. And mm. the, the X factor that we can't control in labor relations, of course, is these are humans. This is human right. behavior. Sure. Yeah. And we also have the external factor of of a labor union deciding that it wants to focus mm. on a group of employees. So yeah. there's still a lot of subjectivity, um, even though we can build in a lot of quantitative data that can help. Um, it still is really important to have someone with experience in labor relations, review it, provide insight. I feel like that's mm-hmm. still really crucial, that, that element, the human touch aspect of it with that experience. Right, for sure. And, you know, once we have the data in hand, you know, that human element is what's going to help us. How do we prioritize? I mean, we have limited resources in the form of both time and money. So how do we know what to address first once we've got this data in front of us? Question we get a lot, right? What what do we do first? How do we prioritize? We can't do everything all at once, uh, Mm -hmm. which is natural. And, And the beauty of creating dashboards like this and doing a gap analysis is it allows for segmentation based on that data. So Mm -hmm. for an employer with multiple locations, they may say, we want to focus on the top quartile from a vulnerability standpoint. We want to focus on that group first. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if it's an employer with a single location, perhaps you segment by potential bargaining unit. um, And that can provide a starting point. So you can look at different job classes or different groups of employees, even within a single location. Mm -hmm. So I think Using the data helps you make some some informed decisions about where you can start because you're absolutely right. You, you can't try to boil an ocean. Mm-hmm. So, Nick, in another conversation that you and I had, you talked about strat- a strategy of put out the fire first, then build a firewall. And I, I thought that was brilliant. Can you explain a little bit more about that approach? Yeah. So part of it is being a good steward with resources, um, waiting for fires to start and then put them out, as, as you can imagine from this analogy, is incredibly costly. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention it, it entails destruction, right? That's, that's what fires do. So similarly, waiting for employee and labor relation issues to get to that boiling point will create a lot of destruction as well. And, and it will take an emotional toll on employees, on your leaders, Unfortunately, that's often when employers wake up, though, and they see the importance of this. So ideally, uh, you avoid the fire in the first place, but that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. But once you've had that issue, uh, I think it's incumbent on us as leaders to put into place systems and processes to avoid it happening again in the future, because it's a lot easier to to spend some time working on some of the proactive strategies over time than get Mm -hmm. into an issue where you're up against a fixed deadline where perhaps your employees are voting on whether they want a union Mm. um, or you may have uh, a potential strike threat or some other employee unrest. Um, And so getting ahead of that, building that firewall will be a better use of resources in the long run and also reduce a lot of the other adjacent issues. For sure. And should we think of this area as um, singular in focus? And what I mean by that, does it stand alone as a labor relations function or should it also be woven into organizational development, communications, leadership and development? I don't think it should be standalone. Um, An effective labor relations strategy 
really brings in expertise from all of those areas. So communications, organizational development, mm-hmm. legal, um, absolutely operations, uh, mm-hmm. in addition to that HR or labor relations function. So it can reside in, in, in that area. It can reside in a labor relations department or, or in the HR function, but it really needs to be an, an interdepartmental cross-functional team. I always say it can be HR enabled, but it really has to be operationally driven Um, because at at the end of the day, you really are relying on a lot of your frontline leaders um, and they're generally not going to be in your HR function. They're going to be out there in in operations. And so Mm -hmm. you really do need buy-in and support from a variety of different areas throughout the, the organization. So, you know, every company is different, but who's the best to ultimately own the positive employee relations strategy? You know, do we need dedicated labor relations personnel to be successful in a preventive effort? Well, some of that will depend on the size of the organization, the the industry that you're in, um, as well, honestly, as how much labor activity the organization is facing. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. someone has to be responsible for it. um, And having some dedicated expertise is beneficial, particularly Mm -hmm. if it's in-house. But smaller employers may prefer to use outside resources more heavily, um, while others may build a a larger internal team. Um, Employers that are facing a lot more labor relations issues may also choose to build a a larger internal team as well. So I'll use retail as an example. Mm -hmm. They're an industry that has faced nearly continuous labor relations issues for at least Mm -hmm. several decades, if not longer. So when you look at nearly all of the major retailers, they have sizable, dedicated labor relations teams mm-hmm. in-house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can be 20, 30, 40, 50 employees. That, that, that's their job. That's all they do. Um, contrast that with the tech sector, technology. Um, they are just now in the last several years starting to be the target of labor. So even these large tech employers may not really have those dedicated resources yet. Um, internally, mm-hmm. and sometimes not even externally, uh, because it's just not something that they've been able, they, they've been forced to deal with as they've started up, but but that's evolving. So I think it really does depend a lot on the specifics of your organization, your industry, um, and some of the external issues that you may be facing. So what are, like companies who have, you were talking about retail and how they've, you know, been dealing with labor issues for years and years. How does a company that both has unionized, organized employees um, and unrepresented employees balance that? If you want to keep those, those direct connections with the folks who don't, aren't represented, how do you, how do you balance those two? That's a a great question. And, you know, this is a a strategic decision that needs to be made um, by those organizations. So some organizations will take the approach of, not making union representation look quite as attractive as being able to directly work with your leader. And so when it comes to wages, benefits, um, terms and conditions of employment, generally those organizations will want to make sure that their non-represented employees get just a little bit more or that they get whatever it is, whether it's a raise or, or a change, a positive change in benefits, mm-hmm. they get that before the unionized employees mm-hmm. are able to get that through negotiation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah. If you do that the other way around where the union leads or is perceived as getting something better, it makes it a little bit harder to tell employees that they don't need a union and that there's not a benefit in having a union. So mm-hmm. that can be a challenge. Sure. You know, the other part is really making sure that leaders understand the difference mm-hmm. in managing a unionized workforce versus managing a non-represented workforce where they can work directly with their mm-hmm. employees to advocate for their issues. And so 
making sure that they that the leaders understand that they've got a lot more autonomy to work with their non-represented employees and to avoid the tendency of treating everyone as though they're all under the union contract. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reason that a lot of employers don't necessarily want their employees to be represented is they, they, they like the flexibility. They like mm-hmm. being able to advocate for employees to solve their issues quickly, sure. to be nimble in the marketplace. And so they, they still need to recognize that they have that opportunity with their non-represented employees. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So what have you seen um, with the effects of the pandemic on on union organizing, on unrest? You know, what has the pandemic lent all of us toward in terms of, you know, what labor relations is doing now? Well, the, the pandemic has created, um, I think, obviously an incredible amount of stress uh, in the workplace. Um, and, and so mm-hmm. I don't think there's a single industry um, that hasn't been affected. Uh, but in particular, you know, you can look at healthcare, you can look at retail, you know, any of the essential workers that still were having to go into the workplace during the pandemic, there was an incredible psychological toll that it took um, Mm -hmm. on employees and leaders in in navigating through this, because not only are they concerned about what's going on at work and being safe at work, but then they're also still dealing with the issues that they have at home with being safe at home, Mm -hmm. dealing with virtual schooling for their children, taking care of family, all of those issues. So, I think we're we're seeing this. Uh, we're starting to see as we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic. Th- there's a bit of PTSD um, mm-hmm. as as employees and employers, the workforce as a whole, is recovering from this. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of the coin, there also were a lot of employers that then that allowed employees to work from home, work remotely, and so now we're seeing a lot of really interesting discussions around. Well, do we even need to come back into the workplace? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and what does that mean? Um, are we doing a fully remote workforce still? Are we doing a hybrid model? And if it's a hybrid model, do those that actually come into work somehow gain an advantage because they're able to see their boss or they somehow may seem more committed to the organization mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. came into work right. than those that don't? And so I think we're going to be dealing with a lot of those issues um, you know, still for years to come. But I think it also prompted a pretty significant shift in work in which a lot of employers saw really quickly that we actually can let employees do things differently and mm-hmm. offer a lot more autonomy than we might have thought mm-hmm. in the past. And so I think it, you know, we'll see some benefits out of that as well. Uh, what we did see, though, uh, with the pandemic is that labor unions were using this issue um, to organize very actively. And so... Um, they were talking about employee safety. They were talking about PPE or lack thereof. And the the fact that employers, according to unions, weren't doing enough to protect their their employees. And mm-hmm. so I think we'll still see some of that linger beyond um, the pandemic ending, is that this is going to be an issue that will be, you know, seared in the collective workforce's memory for, for a generation. Uh, mm-hmm. And if I'm a union organizer, I will be using this issue um, mm-hmm. to, tr- to try to garner support. So um, you were talking about a little bit of P- PTSD um, in, in the wake of the, the pandemic. Do you think that that's what's causing um, all these people to in in mass quit their jobs? What do you think is going on there? Well, I think right now, and this is just speculation, I'm not an economist, uh, but mm-hmm. you know, right now there are more employees than there are necessarily jobs until we get back to full demand. For, for all the things that we needed before. So there's a surplus of employees. Um, mm-hmm. And so employees can be more choosy about which jobs they take. 
Uh, I know in speaking with, with one of our clients, they said they get lots and lots of applicants that don't even show up for the interview. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, once we see some of the, the changes from uh, some of the unemployment running out and, and some of the other things that were done to support employees during the pandemic, I think we'll start to go back to probably a more traditional balance between employers and employees um, mm-hmm. from a, a recruitment standpoint. But mm-hmm. right now, the, the employees hold a lot of the cards, that's for sure. So getting back to that proactive era, can you share a story or two of companies who are doing this well and you know ones that you've seen and what they're doing to be successful? Yeah, um, definitely. You know, the companies, we work with a couple clients that really have put a lot of energy into developing leaders. Um, and, you know, we find that a lot of, a lot of organizations, it's natural. They take high performers that are great individual contributors, or they're great from a, a technical competence standpoint at their job. And because they're doing really well at that, they promote them into leadership but they might not be the greatest leaders of people. Um, mm. And so, you know, some of our clients have really put forth a, a lot of resources and created great programs to develop leaders. And I think that is key because if you have great leadership, that's going to be one of the best things that you can do to maintain that direct relationship with, mm-hmm. with your employees and not have a third party come in. It comes down to those frontline leaders. Mm-hmm. And and often there's not that investment at the front line. It, it starts after that, after they get promoted or maybe promoted a few times, then they really start developing leaders, um, but really focusing on that front line or even before they're put into that role, mm-hmm. giving them opportunities to develop and, and see if they're right for that role. Um, we've got a few clients that do that really well. Other clients really bake uh, we've got another client that, that bakes this labor relations strategy into their strategic objectives hmm. um, for the year. So it's not, again, something that sits in HR or sits in the labor relations function and is an add-on, but it's a core part of their business. It's what every executive is being um, reviewed on at the end of the year is mm-hmm. what have you done to help support this goal hmm. of making sure that we're doing a great job keeping our employees happy and engaged. Mm-hmm. And making you know certain that they don't feel the need to go out and seek third-party representation. Nick, we're going to take some time out for another quick break, and we'll be right back after this. You're listening to the Project HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Oroqua, and today I'm talking with Nick Monday, Managing Director for IRI Consultants, specializing in labor relations, organizational development, and internal communications. And we're back. So, Nick, I want to talk a little bit about the tools available to companies today. You know, once we have a clear gap analysis and a picture of what we need to prioritize, what options are available to meet those needs? There's a lot out there. Um, And so part of it is vulnerability uh, assessment. And so Mm -hmm. using tools that you might have already for employee surveys um, or other listening systems, that's really helpful Um, from a training standpoint. There's a lot of different offerings for training as well. And so you have your traditional facilitator-led in-person trainings. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies, particularly during the pandemic, moved to synchronous training through a virtual format. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those are tools that more and more companies are looking at. And then even asynchronous learning. So having e-learning uh, and having content, uh, micro-learning where leaders can, on their own time or, or at their own pace, go out and find the information that they need to make sure that they stay current um, mm-hmm. on issues. So those are, those are some things, uh, some tools. I think from a communication standpoint, employers really should be leveraging 
some of the tools out there to monitor what's going on in digital and social media. Mm-hmm. Um, as we talked about, there's so many discussions that are going on outside of the traditional brick and mortar workplace, brick sure. and mortar workplace. Uh-huh. And, you know, having a good sense of, of what's going on beyond the brand and reputational management, um, which you may already be monitoring, but what's the employee sentiment out there mm. in social media? What are your employees talking about? Because that may key you in sooner on critical issues um, than waiting to hear about it in the workforce. And we were talking about earlier, you know, for most companies, the the top priority is training leaders who have that direct connection to our employees and making sure that they understand that this is part of their responsibility as leaders. So what do you recommend for supervisors in our high risk groups? And and then I also want to know what do you what do you think about the lower risk groups where we don't want to raise unnecessary red flags around union organizing, um, where that might you know be a big question mark. Yeah. So, and that's a question we get a lot from uh, from employers: is do we want to use the U word um, <laughs> in areas that we don't think are as as vulnerable because it, it may plant the seed um, with employees? And and I don't take that approach. I I think of union avoidance and labor relations in general um, as a, as an uncomfortable topic for a lot of leaders, but a topic that they need to get comfortable with regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not really a matter of if it's going to be something that they need to face at some point. It's typically a matter of when. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just like with kids, we you know we need to talk to them uh, about drugs ahead of time, right? You don't wait mm-hmm. until they've been approached. You want to make right. sure that they understand your position on it ahead of time. Uh, we want to get leaders really comfortable with it to mm-hmm. say, you know, I'm comfortable handling this issue if an employee brings this up. Mm-hmm. But strong training for those frontline leaders, those high-risk groups, um, that's really imperative because they're the closest to those union-eligible employees. They're going to be the first to see early warning signs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and research has shown that the relationship between employees and their first-line leaders is highly correlated with their union support. Yes. So for those leaders, I think high-touch education and training is is going to be more valuable, have the best results. And again, that can be either in-person or synchronous training. And then for some of the other areas or some of the other leaders, uh, you know, there's other opportunities to use a- other asynchronous learning models, e-learning. That can be great to reinforce or refresh. But really for that, that true behavior change, it's hard to beat live training with role playing that actually gets them out of their comfort zone and allows them to, to practice what they'd be doing in those situations. Yeah. So let's go there for a second. You know, we talk a lot about the fact that when it comes to training supervisors and educating employees, you know, knowledge is great, skills are better, but really that brass ring is is behavioral change. So what do you advise companies that want to build a, a, a culture where unions just aren't necessary? Well, you're absolutely right. It must go beyond mere knowledge transfer to turn into meaningful changes in how leaders lead. So great companies empower leaders to make decisions to advocate for their employees. But mm-hmm. but in providing that autonomy, that means we also have to give leaders the right set of tools in order to make good decisions or, or they're going to they're gonna be bound to, to stumble or, or fail. Um, and that's where that really strong training plan that brings in real world, like world examples is so powerful. Uh, it gives leaders the confidence to put their learning into action so that it benefits their employees. Mm-hmm, for sure. And so last, but definitely not least, we are both part of IRI Consultants. Can you share with our audience a little bit more about IRI and let our listeners know where they can find out more? Sure. Well, we've been helping clients for more than 40 years now. Uh, we've got uh, teams in more than 30 states across the country. 
And uh, we really focus on a holistic strategy that, that brings in our expertise in labor relations, communications, organizational development, and digital solutions to provide highly customized solutions for all of our clients. Um, and so whether that's navigating specific challenges in the workplace, improving engagement, uh, or dealing with labor relations issues, uh, we've got, I think, very uh, custom-tailored solutions uh, to meet the needs of any of our clients. So if anyone's interested, uh, you can go to iriconsultants.com uh, and learn more. Yeah, for sure. So I want to let our audience know that links to the IRI Consultants website, as well as all the notes from this episode, will be included in this episode's companion guide. So be sure to unlock that today at projectionsinc.com slash podcast. Right now, though, Nick, it is time for our lightning round questions. And these are questions we ask of every guest of the podcast. Are you ready? I am. All right. So our first question is always a topic showdown. In this episode, we've been talking about positive employee relations. So in your opinion, Nick, which is more important to positivity and employee relations, gratitude or optimism? Uh, That's a tough one, but I think I'll go with optimism on that one. Mm -hmm. If you give employees hope, they they can do amazing things and they'll walk through fire for you. Mm -hmm, For sure. So what are your favorite sources for information in our industry? Great question. Um, I, I do read a lot of the mainstream uh, media publications, so New York Times, the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal, Bloomberg. They, they've been covering labor relations issues more and more. And of course, with the, the pandemic, they're also covering a lot more mm-hmm. workplace and employee issues as well. Um, I do like to see what some of the perspectives are that might be more of a, an employee or labor perspective. So some of the digital publications like Slate or Vox, Mm-hmm. Um, those are interesting to read. I've set up uh, in Apple News some different topics. Mm-hmm. One's labor policy, one's on the National Labor Relations Board. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it pulls in different articles that um, are from a variety of different sources that are about those topics. So I find that that helps give me a pretty good sense of what's going on. Um, and then uh, a lot of law firms put out different bulletins on um, different changes in labor law. So I just try to stay up to date with those. And then finally, um, the National Labor Relations Board itself actually uh, has an electronic mailing list you can sign up for, and they Mm -hmm. will send you weekly summaries of key decisions, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, updates on memos from the general counsel's office. So um, those are helpful. Uh, You have to sift through a a little bit of extra information in some of those cases, but um, often you can find some really important news um, as it happens, as they issue those releases. So that's been really helpful. All great ideas. So tell me, what's your favorite thing about working in labor relations? Uh, well, I, I love working with people. Um, mm. And so labor relations allows me to work with people while also allowing me to help solve complex issues that people are facing at work. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that for me personally, I want to work in a, a great place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do right now. I'm very lucky. Uh, but I think we um, as consultants have the opportunity to help employers create that same great workplace um, as well for their employees. Exactly. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Surround yourself with people smarter than you are. Mm-hmm. I love that. Nick, I want to thank you for joining me today on this week's episode of Project HR. Thank you for having me, Jen. Sure. I also want to thank everyone listening. And I want to remind you that you can relax and take in every episode of Project HR as we've listened back to the episode for you and done all of the hard work by taking notes and creating your companion guide. To grab the companion guide for this episode, just visit us at projectionsinc.com podcast. And if you'd like to be on Project HR or you know someone who would, please email us at projecthr at projectionsinc.com. 
And last, but certainly not least, to make sure you never miss an episode of Project HR, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast. Drop us a line, leave us a review, or give us a handful of stars wherever you get your content. That's it for me for now. Let's make it a great day at work.